If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 477. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N. McClanahan.com. Give me an email address while you're there. I'll give you a free ebook and a free audiobook. You get on my email list. I usually email you uh, four times a week or so, four or five times a week, with links to this podcast and other things that I'm talking about. They're like little info mails, right? So, I mean, look at them as fun. I also include coupons for my McClanahan Academy at times. And right now I'm running a great sale on that. So, if you're getting this the week of July 12th, you're still getting the sale. And you want to pick up those classes when they're on sale because they're not always on sale. So uh, go on out there. Give me that email address. I'll get you some emails and some coupons. You can also go to McClanahan Academy. Subscribe there. I often email you there with coupons and deals. So lots of great ways to support the show. Click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and cool stuff. Click on that support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. Get a book plate, an autograph on a book. You can buy my books. I've got nine of those. Lots of great ways to support the show financially. Also, don't forget to share it around on social media. Rate it where you get your podcasts. That's how we're going to grow the audience. And we've been talking a lot about 1776 this week. Yesterday it was Cameron Hilditch at National Review and his idiotic position that somehow the idea of secession is the antithesis of the Declaration. I don't know how you come up with that except that he's been reading too much Jaffa and Lincoln. And then... The day before, we talked about uh, the Constitution as being pro-slavery or anti-slavery and how that actually wrestled with this idea of the founding. But today, we're going to talk about the battle for 1776. Now, we had the bicentennial of the Declaration in 1976. We're coming up. We're less than five years away now of the 250th anniversary of the Declaration. For some of us, this will be the last big anniversary we see. Uh, We won't get to 300. Um, Maybe. I mean, we might be able to... I might be able to make it to 300th anniversary, the tricentennial. I don't know. Uh, Some of you might be able to make it there. But uh, for many of us, this might be the last big anniversary. And we're seeing an entirely different discussion of 1776 in the year 2021, as from compared to 1976 and the years leading up to the bicentennial in 1976. But this is a piece um, that was at the New York Times, I believe, is where this was published. The Battle for 1776. Plans for America's 250th birthday in 2026 are already getting underway, but can the spirit of 1776 survive the history wars of 2021? Now, that subtitle, I think, gets to the heart of some of the things going on here. We are having history wars, the war of memory, as the Nicole Hannah-Jones people talk about in 1619 Project. They call these things memory laws. We're going to have memory laws. We can't remember the the war or anything else in any way other than you say we can remember it. 
But of course, the whole idea is that we have uh, this New York Times project, which is seeking to remember the war and other things in a way that maybe 1% of the population uh, would... Re- now, if you want to expand that out to slaves, and um, then we're looking at 13% of the population, or... 20% of the population, or whatever percent. In some states, of course, it was more, but overall, we're talking that the, the uh, African-American population of the United States has rarely been above about 13 to 15% overall. So do we want to remember the history of America from a vast minority, the way they remembered it? Because that's really what we're asking now. Critical race theory at its heart, and this idea of making the 1619 Project the central idea of American history is saying we're going to teach history from the perspective of 13% of the population. The rest of you don't matter. The rest of you don't matter at all. We're going to teach it the way 13% of the population saw it and the way we think about it, and then you all have to get over that. Instead of saying, you know what, we're going to teach it the way the majority of Americans saw American history, and then everyone else has to get over it. I mean, if we really believe in democracy, and this is all democratic, then shouldn't the majority, and how the majority of America saw the war, shouldn't that be the driving way that we, we remember the war? We remember it the way the people that participated in it remember the war? That should be the way we do it. But this piece of the New York Times has a very interesting quote in it I want to get to. So let me read this thing. It's, it's not very long. It's been a tough year for 1776. On January 6th, rioters entered the U.S. Capitol, some waving 13-starred 1776 flags. Oh my gosh, this is this is the Colin Kaepernick nonsense of not wanting to uh, have the Betsy Ross flag on a shoe because that's racist. You see, these Trump people are all just racist. These January 6th rioters are all just racists, insurrectionists. That all deserve to die, as you read on. I mean, I actually saw that the other day. All the people that entered the Capitol deserve to die that day. Now, should they be going in and violently trying to smash windows and other things? No, absolutely not. Should any of that take in place? No, absolutely not. And if you're looking at, you know, where you can have some type of defense of a building, I mean, that's that's going to be it. You know, we, we talk about how um, the left engages in these tactics and they're wrong. Well, the right shouldn't do it either. We know that there's hypocrisy in all this because the left just put up barbed wire and everything else when they just let the their their people just ransack cities and burn down buildings and who cares? But if they ever get near the cathedral, then you have to go and shoot people. Um, and they all should have died. This is the leftist position. It's just completely stupid, but this is what they do. Uh, Two weeks later, President Trump's 1776 commission issued its report calling for a patriotic education, which painted progressives as enemies of the timeless values of the founding. Well, not really, because they're espousing progressive ideals, right? I mean, they're, they're essentially agreeing with them on the foundational premise of the United States, which is the proposition nation. They just think it got to a point and it, we, we achieved what it was, and now we should stop right there. I mean, we've got the proposition nation. We achieved what it set out to do. Now don't go any further than that. And the left is saying, forget you. We're taking it further. We're taking it to what we think is the logical conclusion of all this. So they all believe in the same thing. And I've talked about that before on this particular show. And in recent months, 1776 has been a rallying cry for conservative activists taking the fight against critical race theory to local school boards across the country, further turning an emblem of national identity into a culture war, battering ram. 
well, that's this this conservatives aren't creating the culture war. The left is. Conservatives are just reacting to it in many ways, saying we're not going to let you do this. We're not going to let you distort the American founding. We're not going to take the perspective of a minority of the population and make that the majority perspective. I mean, this is essentially what people are saying, even though the conservatives really don't know what they're doing because they're essentially agreeing on the foundation of it all, which is the real problem. These efforts have drawn condemnation from many of the nation's historians who see them as attempts to suppress honest discussion of the past and play down the role race and slavery have played in shaping the nation from the beginning. These efforts have drawn condemnation from the nation's historians. Well, there's a problem with that, and that's nation's historians are doing essentially what is going to be said here. What the Twitter historian brigade and what the establishment historian class does is try to create something controversial. They try to create something new so that they can make a career for themselves. And they admit it. They admit it. You can't write, I mean, if Douglas Southall Freeman wrote the best biography of Robert E. Lee, if you wrote a biography of Robert E. Lee mirrored after Douglas Southall Freeman, well, then nobody's really going to pay much attention to it. But if you write Ty Sedgley's misreading, or you write Ty Sedgley's Robert E. Lee and me, well, then, oh my gosh, people are going to pay attention to it. If you write, if you're uh, Pryor, Elizabeth Brown Pryor, and you write reading the man, well, then people are going to pay attention to it because it's controversial, because it contradicts. So you revise, and then people pay attention to you, and that's where we go. Historians are revisionists. By nature, many of them are revisionists, particularly those on the left because they can't stand traditional history. So they got to do something else that's going to get people to pay attention to them because when people pay attention to them, they get book contracts, and when they get book contracts, they get jobs at institutions, universities, and then they get tenure and they get a cushy life where they teach maybe uh, four classes a year, and most of the time don't do much else, except if you're Kevin Cruz, you sit on Twitter all day. That's what they do. So uh, this is the point of historians, you see. And look, I'm, I'm one, but I do things differently. Uh, in fact, uh, most historians don't do much at all, um, except, uh, again, complain about things or you know enjoy it when somebody ask them a question, they can answer something about their little minutia of something that they know about. But as planning for America's 250th birthday on 2026 gets underway, some historians are also asking if the story they tell of the founding has gotten too dark. Well, of course it has. I mean, they've distorted it so badly now that nobody really even cares anymore. For scholars, the rosy tale of a purely heroic unleashing of freedom may be long gone. But does America still need a version of its origin story it can love? Well, of course it does. I mean, see, this is the problem with scholars. They're not really that scholarly. Because what they're doing is trying to create careers. They're careerists. And so, well, you know what? If I paint, if I say that, that the war was really about slavery, if I wrote a book on how the American War for Independence was really about slavery, if I did this 20 years ago, it would have been so controversial that people would have seized on it, and it would have been a huge hit. Now, of course, it would have received the backlash from people that don't believe it, but certainly it would have been controversial enough that you could have landed in a tenure position. So what historians try to do is figure out, okay, what are people saying about this here that's been long established, and how could I say this to be differently? And what are the things that Americans are most concerned about now because of the Marxist dialectic? Well, it's race, class, gender. 
So if I can come up with some distortion or revision of American history based on race, class, gender, on some major event, well, that's going to change everything. If I can say Robert E. Lee had a foot fetish, uh, if I can say the American War for Independence was all about slavery, if I can say that race was at the heart of every major decision of everything that's ever been done in America, well, then people are going to buy into that now. And so that's going to make a career out of me. Now, I think 50 years from now, people are going to look back at these historians who are writing this stuff and think these people were just absolutely stupid. They were crazy and stupid because you can't find this stuff. I mean, they're making stuff up as they do these things. On both sides, I mean, look, the the conservatives who try to say that uh, Lincoln wasn't a racist or Lincoln was interested in freedom all the time or whatever it is, I mean, that that's completely revisionist because it's not true. I mean, we know this about Lincoln. But you come up with something that's controversial and that makes a name for you. And then, of course, if you can do it to bash America because that's trendy, uh, or you can do it to not necessarily bash them. You're not bashing America. What you're bashing are people that supposedly distorted America's founding principles that you think they were, which is the proposition nation. And therefore, what you're doing is bashing essentially a certain segment of America, which is conservatives or Southerners. I mean, this is what you're trying to do. That's easy. That's... That's the game right now. The story historians tell about the American Revolution has changed enormously since the bicentennial. Uplifting biographies of the Founding Fathers may still rule the bestseller list and Broadway. But these days, scholars depict the Revolution less as a glorious liberty struggle than a hyper-violent civil war that divided virtually every segment of colonial society against itself and left many African Americans and Native Americans worse off and less free. I mean, so this is, again, it's a depressing... Uh, negative view of an event which Americans for generations celebrated. That's the thing. So we're going with a view of the war that would have been supported by a vast minority of the population. We're going to favor that over a view of the war that would have been held by the majority of Americans for most of American history. How stupid is that when you really think about it? This is scholarship, though. Today's historians aren't in the business of writing next neat origin stories. Complexity, context, and contingency are their watchwords. But in civic life, where we shake, where we stake, on, where we stake our beginnings matters. Every nation has to have a story, says Annette Gordon-Reed, a historian at Harvard, whose new book on Juneteenth parses the illusion, the illusions and simplifications at the heart of a various origin narratives. Uh, Elizabeth, I'm sorry, Annette Gordon-Reed fabricated stuff clearly took documents and fabricated things in her book on Jefferson, which is how she made a name for herself. She took something that she thought was going to be controversial, and it was, and she got a tenured position at Harvard out of it, even though the book is, again, hot garbage. But still, uh, this is where, you know, what you do as a historian. We're arguing now about the context of that story and finding the balance, she said. If you think the United States was a good idea... You don't want people to think the whole effort was for nothing or was meaningless or malign. You think the United States was a good idea. Was the United States a good idea? I mean, think about what she's actually... If you think it was a good idea, well, then you don't want it to be bad. Uh, well, I mean, I guess the principles of self-government and self-determination are a pretty good idea. I mean, I guess that's okay. 
And this is what you if you think it's an okay idea, I mean, come on. What what this is this is a Ivy League historian. Well, if you think it's a good idea, I, I don't even know what to say to that, except for my gosh, I mean, this is how far how how bad these people really are. First of all, America was an idea, but if you think the principles of again, self-determination, self-government, that's pretty good stuff. I mean, that's the American tradition. Liberty, independence, these kind of things. And this is what the people who are storming the Capitol with 1776 flag, they're talking about self-government, self-determination. This is what Americans generally believe in out of the American War for Independence. In a recent essay about teaching the American Revolution, Jane Kamensky, a professor of history at Harvard, argued that historians need to do more to shore up our fragile democracy. The latest, best scholarship, she writes, is brave and fresh and true, all of which is necessary, but it is not, in the end, sufficient. It's not really brave and fresh and true. It's all establishment crap to get you a job. And if you write anything that really is brave and fresh and true, it's always tempered. And I point to uh, uh, Nicoletti's book on secession, where she talks about the trial of, or the potential trial of Jefferson Davis, and how Essentially, she was persuaded that Davis had the stronger case, but she really couldn't say that. And she almost begged in the introduction to read this book and not hold it against me that I actually find the arguments in favor of Davis more compelling than those against. That I really don't believe the Confederacy was right and really was based on race and slavery. But don't get me, I mean, please don't hold this against me that I wrote this book. This is, this is, she's appealing to the knuckleheads that run these Ivy League institutions and public Ivies and everything else not to hold it against her that she actually found these arguments more compelling and stronger than the ones against Davis. This is how bad these people really are. They're all fascists. They're fascists who don't tolerate dissenting thoughts because the modern scholarship is fresh and brave and true. But it really isn't. It's all stupid. It's not very fresh and brave and true in any way. It's not brave. It's not brave to write the 1619 Project. It's really not even brave to write the 1776 Project. You want to be brave? If you wrote a biography or even to write a biography of John C. Calhoun that essentially blames Calhoun for Dylan Roof, which is what the most recent biography does. You want to know what's brave? If you actually didn't say that. If you said that Calhoun was a substantial American that we all need to pay attention to because he had some really important things to say about government, that would be brave nowadays. Or to say Robert E. Lee was a great American, that's brave. The other stuff isn't brave because everyone's going to slap you on the back and say, how about a tenure track job there, Johnny or Sally or whoever you are? How about that? What, what people are doing to write these stupid 1619 narratives and everything else, that's not brave at all. And it's a problem that Kaminsky, the lead historian for Educating American Democracy, a now cross-ideological civics education initiative launching, launched last spring, believes has only grown more urgent. We as a profession are very invested in originality, which means toppling, she said, I think originality also means discovery and building. We ignore history's responsibility to help plot a way forward at our peril, which is about toppling. You see, again, originality means toppling. So if you want to be original, you got to take down Robert E. Lee. If you want to be original, you got to take down John C. Calhoun. Or do you? Or maybe it's originality to not do that. Maybe originality is actually toppling the stupidity of the left. 
That might be more original now, but you see the left, because they stake careers on this stuff, won't let that happen while they're in positions of power. And so they perpetuate themselves, and that creates the real problem we have in the modern academy, where there are really no real conservative voices. Alan Gelzo doesn't count. Alan Gelzo worships Abraham Lincoln. Alan Gelzo genuflects to Lincoln. I'm sure he takes a, pilgrimages to, a pilgrimage to the Lincoln Memorial every year so he can spread holy water on it and say his prayers in front of it. This is what he does all the time, I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, it's, it's going to D.C. as his going to his Mecca. I mean, this is what he wants to do. As this public mythology evolved, various groups laid claim to the memory and symbols as a way of defining the nation and anchoring themselves to citizenship. It was black abolitionists in the 1840s who first promoted the story of Crispus Attucks, the mixed-race black and Native American sailor said to be the first to die for the revolution in the Boston Massacre. For Irish immigrants prior to the Civil War in, Civil War in New England, claiming spiritual descent from the revolution became a way of claiming Americanness, while white Yankees sought to preserve the spirit of 1776 as their inheritance through blood. Those fractures and fears of losing the true revolution have carried forward. Today, the bicentennial of 1976 may be remembered mostly for its exploitation of commercialism and bicentennial kitsch, as, as well as celebratory spectacles like a reenactment of the signing of the Declaration of Independence that drew a reported million people to Philadelphia. But it came at a moment of extraordinary national division, the wake of Watergate, the withdrawal from Vietnam, after surviving some of the bitterest times in our history, the official commission's final report declared, we cried out for something that to draw us together again. Some saw the task differently. The African-American Bicentennial Corporation, a private nonprofit group, worked to designate new black history landmarks and organize events like a dramatic reading of James Earl Jones of Frederick Douglass's What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? And again, this is where we're seeing some of this stuff now. That group that did this is now ascendant in America, whereas a group that would say, hey, let's have a reenactment of the signing of the Declaration. No, 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 you can't do that because there were slaveholders there. And those are all white guys, and that's all going to be bad news. You can't do any of that. See, what we've done is taken this one small segment and made that ascendant. And it's because of the historical profession that most of this has actually been allowed to happen because their job as Kaminsky says, is to topple. They need to topple this very positive and productive vision of the American founders as great men. When I wrote The Pig to the Founding Fathers in 2009, I said in the beginning that it was, in the introduction to that book, that it was almost shocking to me that we should even have to write this book now in 2009. That was, what, 12 years ago. 11 years ago, excuse me, 11 years ago when it was published. And uh, I thought to myself then, um, I mean, why is this book even necessary? 12 years ago, I'm saying it's 12 years, 2009, I'm, I'm, I'm losing track of my time today. Why it was even necessary, but... Even in 2009, the founding generation was under attack. Here we are 12 years later, and it's really under attack. I mean, we had the city of Charlottesville not only take down Robert E. Lee, not only take down Stonewall Jackson, but they took down Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea. I mean, this is where we're going, right? They're part of the founding generation. Sacagawea, an important figure. I mean, 
just to celebrate Sacagawea and say this is a this is a contribution to um, the American experience. Now we're going to take that down. We're going to take down Teddy Roosevelt outside the New York Museum of Natural History because there are a couple of it, it's it's colonialism. This is what we're going to do. We're going to take all that down. Um, you couldn't even make the mu- the movie Night at the Museum anymore because it's I mean that would be too pro uh, you know traditional narrative of American history. You couldn't even make that. That's Disney from what. 15 years ago? That's it. But in that time, 12 to 15 years, so many things have changed in America. And it's because of that one paragraph. This group has become ascendant. This very small faction of American society has been loud. And because the establishment historians, oh, yeah, this, this is good. This is good stuff. This is what we need, even though it's all incorrect. But it's all a good theory that we need to talk about. And let's get people tenure over this stupidity. And the People's Bicentennial Commission, a left-wing group founded by the activist Jeremy Rifkin, aimed to recover what it saw as the true radical spirit of the founding that had been swept aside by big business. At one protest, they burned President Gerald Ford in effigy. At another, Ronald McDonald was hanged from an Erstaz Liberty tree. The group, also, the group drew alarm in Washington. In May, in a May 1976 report titled The Attempt to Steal the Bicentennial, Congressional Subcommittee denounced it as a front for organizations of the revolutionary left which seek to pervert the legitimate meaning of the American Revolution. I mean, at this time, if you go back and you look at, say, Mel Bradford and what he's writing about things in 1976 and into the 1980s, we were still talking about the Bicentennial. I remember as a kid, you know, my uh, my grandfather had a lot of Bicentennial materials, Um and um, I was too young to remember the Bicentennial. But it was a big deal. And, I mean, people really enjoyed this idea of the founding and self-determination and limited government and all. I mean, this was all coming out of it or, or, you know, independence and freedom and liberty and all that stuff. But nowadays, no, no, no. Because all those things were betrayed by these people. This is, what, this is the impression we're going to get. Mark my words. In five years, when this comes up, what we're going to see is the betrayal of the founding generation. The betrayal of it all. They betrayed us. That's what's going to be the interpretation. The Bicentennial also kicked off a boom in scholarship on the revolution, which sometimes spawned bitter disputes between historians focused on recovering the experiences of marginalized people and those taking a more celebratory, elitist-centric view. Within the historical profession, at least, those pitched battles have cooled. If there's a keystone text of the current scholarship, it's Alan Taylor's American Revolutions, A Continental History, a kaleidoscope synthesis published in 2016. Taylor, a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, takes in actors and events far beyond the 13 colonies and the Founding Fathers, casting a cool, anti-heroic eye on the revolution's costs for many. But again, is that what we should be doing with this? Statues and monuments and markers represent the best of American society and what we consider to be traits that were worthy of, of admiring, right? I mean, we have Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea, the idea of exploration, of finding things, of, of uh, helping somebody, of collaboration among peoples of different backgrounds. That's important. That's what that monument really represented or Lee, or Jackson, or Washington, or Jefferson, or the people, I mean, look, Lee, as Booker T. Washington pointed out, 
represented the best of Southern society. So we should celebrate that and the traits that made Lee a great man. Just as Stonewall Jackson was a great man, or the common soldier who died and bled in the war was a great man, a hero. On both sides, you can say that on both sides. No one's right and no one's wrong there. This is the point. Today's inclusion, geographic demographic, is also a core theme for those organizing the 2026 commemoration from the official U.S. semi uh, semi-quincentennial commission on down. At the Smithsonian Institution, that means promoting the idea that of the many 1776s, to quote the title of an exhibition to be held across the National Museum of African American History and Culture, the National Museum of the American Indian, and the Smithsonian Latino Center. So, I mean, it's the war is about us, really. It's all about us. You see, this is the point. It's not about... The Battle of Lexington and Concord, it's not about the Battle of Bunker Hill or the, the fight in the southern backcountry, the Battle of Kings Mountain or Camden or, uh, you know, Calpens. It's not about any of that. It's not about the fight to save uh, uh, Charleston and Savannah or, or the Battle of Yorktown. It's not about any of that. It's all about us, these marginalized people and what the war means to us. But see, that's not... That's not the point of the war. It's okay to talk about these things, but not to make it a central focus. The central focus of 1776 should be self-determination, independence, political independence, political liberty. That's what it should be. The right of self-government. That's the whole point of 1776. That's what people talked about for decades after it was over. This is what they pointed to. Not all these other things that have been created out of thin air in many ways. Even places distant from where the revolution was being fought still had a profound influence on the country as we know it today, Kevin Gover, the Smithsonian's undersecretary for museums and culture, said. Gover, a former director of the Museum of the American Indians, said that he experienced some partisans would play football with 1776, but the Smithsonian's goal was to treat it with respect. For us, treating it with respect means telling the truth as well as we can and really encouraging people to embrace the complexity, he said. A living declaration. It may, that may be a tall order in 2021 amid the continuing furor ignited by the 1619 Project, an initiative by the New York Times Magazine that explores the history and continuing legacy of slavery. Posting, uh, positioning the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in Virginia that the year of the nation's very origin. This sparked intense scholarly and partisan debate, along with celebratory counter-campaigns focused on 1620, 1776, and in Texas, 1836. Philip Meade, the chief historian of the Museum of the American Revolution, which opened in Philadelphia in 2017, said he hoped for the, the 20, 250th anniversary would help move past the perception of American history as either hagiographic or iconoclastic. We need to try to handle it warts and all, he said, and to make the conversation more overtly a conversation rather than an adversarial debate. Well, I do agree with that to a point. Um, you know, and, and you have to do that by saying, yeah, I mean, these people didn't believe in a proposition nation. If, if you get that out of the way, it all becomes easy. There was no proposition nation in 1776. That didn't exist. It wasn't there. Jefferson may have said that, but nobody was really firmly committed to it. Even if you say, well, they put the language in the deck in the state constitution, they weren't committed to it at all. It wasn't a core belief. What was core belief was self-determination, political independence, self-government, the idea of liberty, political liberty, that was the spirit. And maintaining English liberties, that was the spirit of 76. 
This is what the Jeffersonians talked about for years. The principles of 76. That's resurrecting the spirit of the revolution. If there was really a revolution, which it was more a war for independence. The museum didn't stint on the underside of the revolution. One exhibit explores how for African Americans, thousands of whom fled the British lines, sometimes freedom wore a red coat. Another explores the predicament of Native Americans whose nations forged whatever alliances might best preserve their sovereignty. It's important to acknowledge not just the disappointments of the revolution, but the really dark outcomes, Meade said. What for? I mean, okay, I mean, tell the story, that's fine. But is that what we're celebrating in 1776? It should be a celebration of the things that were great about 76. That's what we should be celebrating. It's a birthday. Do we say, hey, happy birthday, um... If you want to say that, and people say this, the birthday of America. All right, so let's just take that position. So it's your birthday. Happy birthday, Joe. Uh, it's great that you were born today, but you know what? You're a real jerk. Look at all these things you did. Is that really celebrating a birthday? Should we look at it that way? Let's Okay, let's call it the birthday of America. We'll just go with that line of thinking. It's the birthday of America. The day the 13 states achieved their independence. But you know what? These states were all just a bunch of jerks, and they did horrible things, and all these people were horrible. Forget about this birthday. You stink. Is that really celebrating? If we're going to have a celebration, let's have a celebration about what is great about it. And that's what they did in 1976, I believe, which people are not really interested in doing now. We need to learn from 1776, he said. It's an origin story, but it's a a transformation story. We learn who we are by understanding how we've changed, he said, and that revolution was a huge uh, inflection point in that change. The museum's uh, exhibit will focus on the legacy of the Declaration of Independence. It's a document whose interpretation lies at the heart of today's hyperpolarized history wars. Should it be celebrated as a transcendent statement of freedom and equality embraced by Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, Susan B. Anthony, and the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.? Or was it just a philosophical fig leaf hung over a grubby war to defend white liberty grounded in slavery and native dispossession? Well, it's neither. <laughs> it's neither. And equally useful as a model for South Carolina's Declaration of Secession in 1860. Well, I mean, that's... That last part of it, it's self-determination. That's what we should be celebrating. None of this other stuff, because all that other stuff was irrelevant. Freedom and equality? No, there was no equality there. Self-determination. Self-government. These are what things that should be celebrated. How you see things depends on where you stand. In 2017, when Kaminsky started teaching a new class on the revolution, steeped in the best new scholarship, the ethos was... Skeptical detachment from the founding mythology. She was taken aback when one student, a third-generation Minutemen reenactor, later told her he had hung up his tricorn and musket. It's all garbage and lies, he told her, putting it more strongly. Who could be proud of that? I mean, this is what... But Kaminsky revised that course. Next time, this, the session on the Declaration's promise and limits ended with the group reading it aloud together. Everyone was in tears but I would not pretend to say that they were some tier, same tiers for everybody. So Kaminsky is, oh, I, I get the later scholarship, so this guy gets disgusted with what he is. And this is the point. Why do we do that? I've had people, why, I, I hate where I'm from. I hate being from the South. I hate being from America. I hate being from these things. But yet, when I listen to you or I read these things, well, that all changes for me. Why? Because we have to have a positive affirmation of these things. 
self-determination, self-government, individual liberty, political liberty. These are things that are timeless. All this other stuff is just garbage designed to do exactly what it's doing, which is tearing down the fabric of the American experience and the principle, the real principles of 76. Even some scholars who work as more powerfully chipped away at the Whiggish view of the revolution as unleashing a steady march to universal liberty and equality say they're uneasy at, at what they see as hijacking by anti-democratic extremists. Taylor's American revolutions may be a short, maybe short on uplift or admiring O's of the wisdom of George Washington or Thomas Jefferson. But in, his, but in his class lectures at the University of Virginia, he said, he always tries to connect back to the founder's understanding of the republic as a living organism in which, if not constantly defended by engaged citizens, will dissolve. The founders had a very clear understanding of that, Taylor said. We have a much less clear understanding. Robert Parkinson, an associate professor at Birmingham's, uh, U, I'm sorry, Binghamton University in New York, is the author of 13 Clocks, a recent study on how patriot leaders exploited fears of rebellious slaves and merciless Indian savages. 1776 really gets a pass, Parkinson said. Race was at the center of how the founding actually happened. Yeah, okay. Sure, if you want to believe that guy. Parkinson. Still at the meeting of his American Revolution class after the 2016 election, Parkinson found himself pivoting to talk about English Enlightenment values and the fragility of democracy. It was way more patriotic than I usually go, he said. It was also, he said, in line with where Americans found themselves in 1776. When, as now, the situation was constantly changing, the stakes were high, the future uncertain. Returning to that kind of freshness is another way of talking about the founding, Parkinson said. It's a different kind of usable past. See, again, this is an indictment more of the historical profession than anything. Parkinson is a a nice example of the problem. A usable past? It's not what history is. It's not a usable past. Let's... Let's talk about the way the founding generation talked about the war and the things that they said about it in through the 1820s. What did they say about it? What was it about? Not what these people are saying it's about. There's no usable past. There's no fresh perspective. There's no a living. And the, the, the subtitle of that section that I just read was a democracy if we can keep it. Before that, it was a living declaration. A living declaration. It doesn't live. It's like saying there's a living constitution. It doesn't live. But anyways, this is what we're up against. What we need to be doing is having a positive position on the, on the war and what it actually brought and not and and getting rid of this proposition nation idea because that's at the heart of all the angst about it as well. That needs to go away and what really is the core of the spirit of 76, the principles of 76 as the Jeffersonians understood it was self-determination, self-government, individual liberty. That is the key to understanding the 250th anniversary. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time for the next one. See you then. <laughs>